Hey, deserving listeners, I just got done watching Tiger King, Murder, Mayhem, and Madness on Netflix. And wow, what a documentary. So after I got done watching it, I thought, man, I got to talk about this on the podcast. So I came into my office, turned on my webcam, and I thought I would go back through it, kind of fast forward and get reminded of the whole journey of this documentary. And then I would chime in with my own thoughts. Uh, I'm going to spoil the whole thing. So if you haven't seen it, you you definitely want to watch it and come back and watch this video or listen to this podcast. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and I'm also a professor. Let's see where this takes us. At the age of 13, I knew I was gay and I had a bad time struggling with it. When my father found out, he made me shake his hand in front of my mom and promised not to come to his funeral. So I had a real issue dealing with that. And one night I drove my car off a bridge. I broke my back and spent five years in braces. I went to Florida to do my therapy. And uh, my neighbor was the manager of Lion Country Safari. And he brought home all the baby lions and baby monkeys and stuff at night to bottle feed. And that's where my attraction to exotic animals really started in. Okay, so right away I have a lot of things to say about that clip in which he talks about his history. But some caveats. I obviously cannot diagnose from afar, not only because I don't have enough data, I would have to evaluate someone over the span of several sessions for me to gain any kind of beginning hypothesis as to one's personality. I also ethically cannot diagnose from afar because it's, um, cons- it's, it's considered unethical for a lot of good reasons. Um, also, as another caveat, this documentary is clearly designed to be salacious and sensational. It's quite obvious that the producers are presenting things in a way to make Joe Exotic seem like a likable villain. They're not just reporting the facts. They're trying to tell a story that is very interesting to us. And boy, did it work. I mean, it's, you know, the most popular thing on TV right now. So we need to be very skeptical of our impression after watching this this quote-unquote documentary. And I put it in quotes because we tend to associate documentary as reporting the facts. This, this, uh, this um, documentary, this production – uh, has a spin, has multiple spins. It, it kind of comes and goes. And so we just have to be kind of careful with this. Anyway, he was born in Kansas, 1963. When he was five years old, he was, according to him, repeatedly raped by an older boy. So this is a pretty key experience. Um, one, it could, this is a lot of speculation, it could have locked in a younger, older template for how one engages in uh, uh connection with other people um, that might have uh, lasted into his adult life because he had an older, younger, uh, you know, he tended to date younger people. Not always, but he he often did and marry younger. Also, what sexual abuse from an an older boy might teach, you know, you got to think of the lessons that we all learn when we're young. And one of the lessons that some kids will learn after being sexually abused is that exploitation of vulnerable people is acceptable. It sort of shifts our moral compass in a direction more towards 
yeah, you know, sometimes exploitation is okay. We all generally, in a healthy uh, uh, upbringing, have a gauge of like, well, some exploitation is probably okay. Like most of us would agree that if you have a business, for example, and you're hiring somebody, that you're going to try to, you know, not pay them more than you need to. And so you might try to hire someone who just barely qualifies for your job, but isn't overqualified for your job. And one could look at that as, well, you're exploiting the fact that this person kind of needs the job and they can't get another job around town. And so you're going to knock off a couple bucks per hour to pay them because it's going to help with your bottom line and increase your profitability at your business. So, you know, we all have that uh, a general sense given different scenarios that some exploitation is is justified or normal or okay and uh, anything beyond that is not okay. Well, if you're massively exploited as a child by an older person or anyone, then it it teaches you this lesson like exploitation is is okay. And so I think that's a that's a key thing to look at. Also, um, other kinds of messages you learn um, that you receive are, I'm not good enough or important enough or uh, valuable enough or you know worthwhile enough for other people not to hurt me. And again, we all kind of have this uh, in healthy development. We have a, a range of like, well, I'm, I'm worth this much, but I'm not worth that much. For people that are sexually abused, they often emerge from that experience saying, I, you know, I, I'm not worth much because people can harm me. Plus, his, you know, you can walk away thinking your parents aren't really there for you. You know, what, even though his parents might not have known what was happening, uh, kids will often think parents should be there to protect them. And so he could have walked away. Uh, and the parents also could have been very neglectful which made him an easy target for someone to abuse. Again, I have no idea because I didn't. I, there was no data on that. Then he talked about right there in the documentary that he knew he was gay at the age of 13. And he talks about how his parents rejected him, at least his father did. And I'm just going to take a guess that his parents generally weren't very attuned to his needs growing up. A lot of speculation there, hard to say. And that this produced an ongoing attachment injury. And in addition to the sexual abuse he was going through, these uh, are important developmental milestones or experiences that form help to form one's personality and how we cope with closeness and how we cope with ourselves and how we cope with difficulty. And there are many different options available to children in terms of how to cope with these kinds of attachment injuries and abuse and neglect. And one of them is what we call narcissistic personality disorder or narcissistic personality spectrum, as I like to call it, because it's not, it seems kind of funny that we just say anything beyond this threshold, you have narcissistic personality disorder and anything below you don't. I like to think of it as a spectrum. And listen to my whole deep dive where I talked for hours and hours on that. You have to be a patron of the podcast to hear that. But anyway, the the in a nutshell is that uh, kids sometimes develop this coping style of saying, you know what, I'm going to depend on the self and I'm not going to really depend on other people. And so uh, through – which kind of makes sense, right? It's just like, wow, other people are hurtful. Other people can't be depended on. Other people don't notice me. Other people are harmful. How am I going to protect myself? Well, again, one of the options that is available to kids that they will develop 
depending on a lot of different circumstances that, that I won't go into, is, you know what? Other people are bad. I'm good. I can't depend on other people. I really have to depend on myself. And the, the person becomes very self-reliant, very independent. These people tend to uh, have their own business. They, they tend to also be, uh, have a lot of grandiose ideas about themselves because in order to survive – you have to believe certain things that aren't necessarily true. Like, I don't need anyone else. I'm better than other people. I deserve more than other people. You have to adopt these beliefs because uh, when you live overly self-reliant, there's a lot of needs that don't go met because in order to get your needs met, you have to you have to depend on other people and have that exchange of attachment and love and security and you know the give and take of relationships. And when you're not getting that, you have to uh, have this veil of narcissism that supports everything like I'm entitled, um, I'm the best person on the planet. Because underneath that, underneath that very thin veil but very strong veil of narcissism is a deep sense of worthlessness that the person is trying to protect, protect themselves from. I'm not saying he has this, but there are signs of it. I'll I'll just say it, um, and I'll get more into that later. So also we have to recognize that in 1976 when he was 13 years old and growing up in the area of the country that he grew up in, but really anywhere in the country or the world, there was massive oppression against gay people. There still is, but there was a lot more in 1976. As someone who was born in 1970, I can attest to that. And again, pretty key uh, experience of like other people are bad. Um, I need to rely on myself. So um, in a nutshell, what he's learning through these experiences, other people cannot be trusted. Humans cannot be trusted. Humans are bad. I'm good. I need to push myself away from other humans because it usually leads to bad things. So then at some point, his brother dies from an accident with a drunk driver, which is a loss. I couldn't get more detail on that, but one article wrote about that. And then in 1985, when he's 22, he attempted suicide, as he talked about in the documentary. He, He reportedly drove a car off a bridge. He nearly died. He was in braces for a while. And during his recovery, a neighbor would bring over baby lions, as he was talking about. Again, this is a key moment here because remember that, as I said earlier, we all have a need for dependence, a need for closeness, a need for security of, of attachments. And when we give up on humans, sometimes animals are a very worthy alternative. And for him, you know, these, these baby animals, uh, they can't abandon him. They can't sexually abuse him. They can't harm him in any way. And they're cute and cuddly and you hold them close and you get all of your, your physical intimacy needs you know, through, through animals. I think most of us can relate to that. I, I have a lot of pets in my house and I get a lot of my cuddling needs through my pets <laughs> um, in addition to my wife as well. But, but my pets definitely meet a need for me there. And so, again, he's had some key moments, speculation that humans are bad, I'm good, but that makes it so he can't get any of his intimacy, attachment, and physical warmth um, and compassion exchange needs met. And so he gets these baby animals. uh, He's finally getting that kind of closeness and warmth that he always wanted since since he was born is just a a speculation. Um, So humans are bad. Animals are great. 
Then, um, I don't know the exact timeline here, but at some point, Carol Baskin and other animal rights people, they start to find out about – eventually he has a zoo, by the way, because, again, the, the animals are very important to him. Carol Baskin and animal rights people, they, they threaten to take away his secure attachment, uh, not only his livelihood, which is you know a, a big part of security, but they are accusing him of you know being uh, uh, doing something bad to animals and trying to get legislation and other kinds of regulations to to take away his animals. That's going to be very threatening to him because he, he, at this point he's probably still in the mode of like I can't trust humans. I can definitely trust animals. Animals that give me all of my relationship needs. Um, and this woman uh, who he might have some mother transference with, it's hard to know, or even just parental transference with because Carol Baskin has pa- the power of the government, which is another thing to, to think about is when you grow up with parents who aren't so great for you, you might develop this notion that authority is just generally bad and threatening and should be rebelled against. And so that's another speculation there. But anyway – so these animal rights people come in and, and they're threatening to take away his his attachment needs. You know, imagine if um, some uh, organization targeted your your relationship with your spouse and said like, "You two cannot be together." Well, you're not going to have a great reaction to that. And again, because of his narcissism, kind of starting to kick in of like self entitlement, I'm above the law, these kinds of things. Um, then he, his anger kind of runs away with him, and he starts to threaten to kill her repeatedly. Um, he talked in private about killing her repeatedly, and he, and he seemingly, allegedly hired someone to kill her. Uh, fast forward a little bit. His first husband, Brian Ryan, died – or actually, we're winding a little bit. His first, and back in, about 20 years ago, his first husband, Brian Ryan, died of complications to HIV. Another key experience. He probably, you know, he finally uh, fell in love, gets married uh, in a world full of hatred of gay people in a region of the country that's even more particularly hatred to gay people. And his first husband dies of HIV. That must have been a humongous loss in his life. And another lesson that humans can't be trusted because they're going to leave me. Again, it's not a rational thought because it's not like his first husband chose to leave him. But it, it can feel that way to people. Then he married a, a, a fella by, J, by the name of J.C. Hartpence. He got divorced. This person was con, later convicted of child sexual abuse and is currently in prison for murder. I don't know what to say about that, but it's just a detail. Then he married John Finlay, who was in the documentary. Uh, John was just out of high school. Again, that older, younger thing. Uh, to, uh, now, there's nothing wrong with older, younger relationships. Me and Alberto did a whole deep dive on um, age differences in relationships, and I looked at all the research, and in a nutshell, uh, we as a society are way too judgy about those kinds of things. There's obviously instances where there is exploitation of the younger person, but it's not automatic. And there's obviously a cutoff age. You know, if the, if the younger person is 13 and the older person is 45, then we obviously are looking at a situation where in all likelihood there's exploitation, the very little, at the very least it's illegal, right? Um, but, you know, once you get to the age of 19, 20, at least as a, as a society, we've deemed those people as able to um, be in a relationship. Now, as I said, can a 20-year-old be exploited 
by anyone, let alone someone who's 20 years older. Absolutely. And we can look at that. But you can be exploited by someone and, and controlled by someone younger than you. So, you know, it, it's just one of those cultural things that we frown on automatically when, when we – I don't think the data shows that we should be doing that. So anyway, John was younger. Um, now, what does it say about both their personalities that they would engage in this kind of relationship, particularly since John attests to the fact that he uh, didn't identify as gay and, and never had a, a relationship, romantic relationship or sexual relationship with a man? I, I don't remember all the details of what he was saying, but anyway. Then um, uh, Joe Exotic, he marries Travis Maldonado. It's it's a polyamorous relationship with, with three people. They didn't call it polyamorous, but – in the documentary, I don't think, but anyway, that's the way I would call it. Again, Travis was just out of high school as well. And now at this point, I would speculate, a huge speculation here, that for Joe Exotic, he is starting to really be able to trust other humans. He has these two husbands uh, from the documentary where it looks like they had a pretty good relationship, the three of them. And, you know, they had a lot of good times together and there was a lot of intimacy. And so at this point, Again, total speculation. Joe Exotic might have been able to open up his heart towards other humans. Around this time was around the time when he started to move away from the uh, animals. You know, he see, uh, there are testaments of people saying he was really into the animals at first, and over time he just kind of lost interest and became more ex- exploitative of the animals. Again, that exploitation theme in his life. He ran for president of the United States. He ran for governor of Oklahoma. He lost. Um, then uh, one of his husbands, Travis, accidentally killed himself. Some people are asking me, you know, was it? do you think it was suicide? It's hard to know. We'll never know because we'd have to ask Travis and he's dead now so we can't ask him. But from the data that was presented to us in the documentary, it appears to have been an accident. It happens sometimes. Now, might Travis have been... Uh, have engaged in risky behavior because of it, of some underlying suicidal intention. Again, we'll never know, but uh, it appeared to be an accident. Who knows though? Then uh, him and uh, Joe Exotic and John uh, uh, split up, and Joe Exotic married Dylan Passage, who was 22 years old at the time. And then at some later time, Joe Exotic is sentenced to 22 years in prison. So let's look at personality here for a second. So the, the two main personality types that we might look at in terms of does the data presented in the documentary have signs of these personalities is narcissistic personality and psychopathic personality. You can certainly have elements of both or uh, full-blown conditions of both. But looking at narcissistic personality, again, as I was talking about earlier, this is a personality that develops out of attachment, injury, disruption, neglect – abuse that teaches the young child, you know, two, three, four years old, that they cannot depend on other people and they have to depend on on themselves. And when you're in that situation, you're also continuing to be abused and, and mistreated and neglected. And so you have to believe that you are so good at life and so and such a great person that you don't need anyone else. Also, you're getting lots of messages that you're worthless, that you're, you don't deserve love, that you don't deserve relationships, that you don't deserve non-exploitation. And so to protect yourself from 
that that worthless narrative that is you know very much growing in the person they develop this thin veil of narcissism on top of that where I'm the best person. I'm awesome. Not only am I not worthless, but I am worth more than anyone else on the planet. I'm smarter. I'm I'm better. I'm entitled to more. All these kinds of things, because all that is to protect a, a deep, deep, deep sense of worthlessness. And I've talked about this in other episodes. You know, it's one thing to have low self-esteem, like, oh, I'm no good. You know, I everything I say is kind of stupid. That's low self-esteem. For people with higher end spectrum narcissistic personality, they don't just have low self-esteem. They have this sort of worthlessness that is a big black abyss is the way that it feels to people. They they not only feel worthless, they feel like they're like they're empty on the inside. Like they don't like they're they don't even really exist without that narcissistic veil. Now they do exist and they do have a self. They just haven't accessed it yet because they weren't given a chance when they were growing up. So when I treat people like this, it involves trying to help them connect with themselves and connect with that self-worth because they do have worth. Um, They just can't see it yet and it takes a long time and it takes a relationship with a therapist that understands how to treat this to um, experientially allow the person to develop in the way that they weren't allowed to develop when they were two, three, and four years old. Anyway. And so um, does he show signs of having that, that veil while having a deep sense of emptiness and worthlessness on the inside? So again, I'm just, I'm just going off of what was presented in the documentary, which we know to be a biased perspective and extremely limited. Um, I did find a subreddit, uh, the Tiger King on Reddit, and some guy who claimed to have worked with Joe Exotic for many years uh, talked about his personality in more detail. And so I'm, I'm getting some of that from this. But anyway, uh, um, there aren't signs from the data that's presented to us that Joe Exotic had that deep, deep sense of worthlessness that um, is usually present in higher end spectrum narcissistic personality. Uh, people that did exhibit this are uh, L. Ron Hubbard actually exhibited that kind of uh, where when L. Ron Hubbard had a bad day and was having a bad moment, he would kind of fall off a cliff in terms of his personality and would be overwhelmed with worthlessness. And there were reports of him like crying and wailing in a room for three days. Uh, don't quote me on that, but something along those lines. Um, so, you know, we don't really see that kind of evidence with Joe Exotic, but we do see um, a lot of things like he is frequently seeking attention. Now, Lots of people seek attention. <laughs> Pretty much everyone on YouTube is seeking attention. Everyone on Twitter, everyone on Facebook. I am making this podcast. I'm seeking your attention. So uh, it's not uncommon for someone to do that. So we just have to put it, that in perspective. Having said that, there, if you watch the documentary in terms of what's presented to us, there, there seems to be um, a very frequent motivation from him and a very intense motivation from him to garner attention from other people running for office even though he's you know he he must have known he wasn't going to you know be elected as the president of the United States although some would argue that um he had a better chance than we realized given how things turned out but anyway um he, you know he seemingly was very interested in seeking attention and the, the part of the narcissistic personality disorder is that people will shoot themselves in the foot and this is something that 
people often don't realize about personality disorders because they tend to look at people, oh, they're so narcissistic, they always get their way. People who have narcissistic personality, you know, in their upper spectrum or, or even psychopathic personality, they shoot themselves in the foot because their defense mechanism that builds up this this disorder, this this personality problem, it is is to some extent irrational to in how to live a functional life. And eventually, if not frequently, they will shoot themselves in the foot. With Joe Exotic, you could argue that his personality caused him to shoot himself in the foot. He uh, lost a lot of money campaigning so that he uh, d- couldn't sustain his zoo, which he you know enjoyed, which made him have to uh, sell it essentially or give it over to – uh, get out of the debts and everything to Jeff, if you remember that part. Um, and there are many other examples of that where um, he, Joe Exotic, you could even argue that his obsession with Carol Baskin was motivated by trying to get attention. And that obviously ended up shooting himself in the foot. So seeking attention while also having it not go well for him is one of the things. Also, uh, another just data point, red flag, is throughout the documentary, they show him singing these songs, right? Well, I can't believe they didn't include this in a documentary, which, again, tells you that the producers of the documentary were trying to tell a story by, uh, you know, spinning it a certain way and, and completely leaving out a certain information that would be obvious to include, even if it was just like uh, three seconds of someone saying something. Joe Exotic did not write or sing those songs. He paid someone else in my state, Washington State, to actually write and record those songs um, with specific content, you know, like write a song about me and my tigers. They wrote and recorded songs, and then he recorded music videos of him lip syncing. He was he was Millie Vanillying it. And uh, that is, you know, it's a data point. Might someone do that without having the need? You know, when you have a narcissistic personality, you have – it's not just like, haha, today I'm going to be grandiose and, and um, you know, make everyone pay attention to me. You, you have a tremendous need to have people t- pay attention to you. You have a tremendous desperation to have people shower you with compliments because when that tap of admiration starts to trickle down, now you have to face the fact that you feel worthless on the inside. And the the flow of admiration from other people allows the narcissistic person to distract themselves from the deep, deep sense of worthlessness that they feel on the inside. We didn't see that evidence of, of, of that deep, deep worthlessness, but by uh, triangulation, we can kind of point toward that maybe. Hard to say. Again, just speculating here. Uh, you know, why would someone lie when it would be so easy to be discovered that you lied, right? Like Donald Trump, for example, he, for a long time, I think he even admitted that he did this, he would call up reporters and act like he was his own publicist by a different name, and he would talk about how great Donald Trump was. Um, That is a huge risk. And you're also shooting yourself in the foot because the reporters instantly knew it was him by his voice. So you're shooting yourself in the foot and making a fool out of yourself by trying to get people to pay attention to you, and it backfires. So not only do you get some attention, but eventually like things come around, and now people are laughing at you. 
um, or moving away from you. And so that's the nature of narcissistic personality spectrum is it tends to not work out for the person down the line because they're because they're running scared from that worthlessness so fast that they, you know, end up shooting themselves in the foot. Sorry to mix the metaphors there. Another aspect of narcissistic personality, red flags that we see from the data presented in the documentary, is he's seeking power a lot, that he wants to be at the top. He can't – it's hard for him to work for other people, uh, which is, you know, not a slam dunk data point for narcissism, but just another element. Entitlement is another element, again, because of the need for self-reliance and also the veil of narcissism that I'm better and superior to other people – by you know uh, the nature of that conclusion, you're just like, well, I'm entitled to um, things whenever I want them. If I want it, I I can I get to have it, and you kind of see that throughout. It's not super pronounced though. I mean, other than some key data points like I don't like Carol Baskins and I want her dead. You know, I'm entitled to have her wiped off the planet. I I want her gone, therefore she deserves to be gone. Without thinking about her feelings or her family or, you know, her life. And and so there's a certain amount of entitlement there. Um, certainly we could point towards other examples of entitlement in, in, in the documentary. But anyway, also another element of narcissistic personality is that grandiosity of your idea of yourself. Because again, you're trying to pump up this idea that you're so awesome, you don't need anyone. So you can distract yourself from that worthlessness underneath. And that causes you to overestimate your abilities and your rights, you know, that entitlement, but also just your abilities. Uh, he eventually had this notion that, you know what, if I wanted to kill someone on Fifth Avenue, I could. If I wanted to kill Carol Baskin, I could. It, it's this overestimation of your um, uh, your abilities, the things you could get away with. When you're narcissistic, it, you end up sort of believing your own hype which, again, shot himself in the foot. Also, uh, another aspect of narcissistic personality that you'll find is that people that are beyond a certain threshold on the, on the spectrum will become very th- – will feel very threatened and will become overly focused on people who disapprove of them. But, you know, Carol Baskin disapp- – you see the difference between – the way Joe Exotic and the way Doc Antle dealt with Carol Baskin. Joe Exotic was obsessed, seemingly, with Carol, where Doc Antle just, uh, you know, didn't like her and would fight against her in the courts. Although one could argue that Doc Antle also has some narcissistic issues as well, but I'm not going to get into that right now. Uh, for Joe Exotic, this 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 threat of Carol, right? Uh, also, I was talking about earlier in terms of the transference of like maybe his parents weren't so great for him and Carol emulated some energy of, of maternal energy for him. And so he was transferring his anger towards his mom onto Carol, who knows. Um, but this uh, over-focus on Carol is something that is present in narcissistic people sometimes because, again, Underneath that veil of – you would think that narcissistic people would be the most likely to disregard negative feedback and disregard criticism because they're so full of themselves. But of course we know that that's a thin veil and right underneath that is a vast sea of worthlessness. 
And so when people are criticizing and trying to get in your way to the narcissistic person, that's a huge threat because if they end up piercing that grandiosity, taking away one's ability to get that narcissistic supply, they know and they feel in their bones that that's going to cause everything to come crumbling down and then I'm going to have to face this pain. And it and it's happened before and it does not feel good. And so uh, they, have to, uh, they have to attack back that threat. They can't just ignore it. They have to really make sure that that threat goes away. And so to the narcissistic personality disordered person, they will, uh, you know, match – energy with energy and maybe even bulldoze over that if they can. And again, also, it'll become a very frequent obsession in their mind. They just won't be able to let go of that thought until they can get rid of that person. Now, there's many different ways to get rid of people. Obviously, killing them is one way. Another way is to ignore them. Another way is to, um, I don't know, there's just various different ways that narcissistic people will manage that of of either I don't want to hear about it or I'm going to kill them or I need to uh, sue them to get them off and back. But you'll often observe from the outside that it's like, wow, this person's really focusing on negative feedback from other people. Um, you know, people around Joe Exotic said that all the time of just like, wow, like he's really focused on Carol when he should be thinking about other things. Okay. So that's narcissistic personality. I could go into more detail, but for the sake of this, I'll, I'll just end it there. Again, I can't diagnose from afar. I'm just basing this on the little bit of information in the documentary. The other personality that people are asking about is what about psychopathic personality or antisocial personality, which these are related concepts. But um, in a nutshell, it's someone who probably due to a combination of genetics and trauma growing up develops a personality where they lack empathy for other people. They uh, don't mind exploiting other people. They also tend to have what we call criminal versatility where there's just they just look for opportunities to exploit other people. Sometimes they can even be kind of obsessed with exploiting other people. Like you give them the choice of two options, both have equal payoff, but one involves exploiting other people and they're like, yeah, yeah, I kind of like that. Sort of a, a, a sadism that's involved in that for some, not always. Some psychopathic people um, don't have that sadism. But anyway – Listen to my other episodes on psychopathic personality for more information on that. But so what can we see in the documentary that points towards that? Well, he hired someone to kill to kill someone. He hired someone to kill Carol. That's evidence that one is prone to crime, that one doesn't have remorse for other people, that one is willing to kill other people, and, and you don't really uh, care about that. You, you see this when – the documentary people are interviewing all the various people that hated Carol because a lot of people hated Carol um, in the the big cat world. And yet and, – and a lot of them might have even said, yeah, I hope she dies or someone needs to kill her or something like that. But when they're interviewing the other people, they're like, well, none of us thought we were actually going to kill her. Uh, that's the, That's that indication of non-psychopathy of like, yeah, you can say it, but come on, like – actually killing her that that doesn't seem right and so there that's the difference for the psychopathic person they're more likely to not have that editor to not have that threshold that they bump up against it's just like okay yeah i mean fine let's just kill them and we'll get rid of him um, he also seemingly has shown no remorse for what he has done um, he also if we're to believe the allegations 
which I don't know because the documentary throws you off the scent so many times it's hard to know what data to pay attention to. But if he did, in fact, um, you know, uh, intentionally hire someone to kill her, which it seems like that's what the at least that's what the jury saw, then he he seemingly has no remorse afterwards, or at least he's not expressing it, and he also uh, is lying a lot. You know, psychopathic people, because they lack remorse and don't have as much empathy for other people, they don't, they don't really care about hurting other people's feelings as much, then they tend to lie a lot more because it's, it's self-serving to lie. And again, it shoots you in the foot because people who are raised in a healthy way, they have a gauge for how far they should take things, generally speaking. People with psychopathic personality, antisocial personality, because of the way they're raised and because of the way their personality developed, they, they don't have that sense. And so um, he, uh, he exploited other people, but then he ended up in jail because um, of, of his issues here. Other kinds of data points here are not going against society's rules. So uh, – and again, this is when we're looking at a spectrum. So even low on the spectrum of psychopathy – you will find that people might have – they might have remorse. They might have empathy for other people. It might be a little less than other people. But one of the first things you'll see on, on low-grade psychopathy is this disregard for the rules of society. You might dress differently. You might talk differently. You might pick a job that your parents didn't really endorse or you might um, you know, think outside the box a lot. You, you're just like, I, I, I don't conform. And that's that's low grade psychopathy. He definitely was a nonconformist, which is a which is evidence of at the very least low grade psychopathy. Again, I can't diagnose from afar. It's just what's presented in the documentary. He also uh, allegedly or seemingly presented in the documentary fed people old meat that was expired, which could have hurt people. Uh, again, it's unclear if that actually happened, but um, that is a. Now, one could argue, hey, you know, you got to make do with what you have. And a lot of these workers uh, wouldn't be able to afford meat anyway. And so I'm actually doing them a favor. Yes, is it a risk to feed them this old meat? Sure. But a lot of it was just expired in name only. And it wasn't actually, you know, I, who knows what Joe Exotic would say. But it is definitely being funny with the rules, which psychopathic people tend to do. They tend to be like, well, you know, that rule doesn't apply to me. Whereas for most people who aren't psychopathic or aren't even on the spectrum at a low-grade level, even if they're like, you know what, this ex expiration date on this hot dog uh, package is probably a little arbitrary. It's probably fine to eat, but I'm not going to serve it to my employees because, I don't know, it's just breaking the rules. A lot of people have that, right? They get to a stop sign. There isn't a single car they can, they, you know, within miles. And they still stop at the stop sign because for them, they've internalized a sense of like, you know, you follow the rules, generally speaking, and it, it, it feels bad to break rules even if the rules don't make any sense. Most people develop that mechanism. To the psychopathic person, they tend not to have that. Now, a key component of psychopathic personality is what we call criminal versatility is, is what I was talking about earlier, meaning that you generally speaking don't care about rules or laws, you generally speaking don't care about exploiting others. And so what you'll see is you'll see people that the classic psychopath will 
you know, take money out of your wallet while you're not looking, will shoplift, will uh, use credit cards and ch- and checks, bank checks in a fraudulent way, will get in assaults with other people, you know, will will be convicted of assault, uh, convicted of domestic violence, convicted of embezzling from work. There's this general approach to life that results in a lot of different kinds of crimes. To the non-psychopathic person who commits crimes, they tend to stay in a lane like I only rob banks or I only steal cars or something uh, because they're because they're actually uh, trying to instru- – they're, they're instrumental crimes. They're trying to actually further their career or their bank book or something, you know, whereas the psychopathic person, the, the line between, you know, uh, breaking the law and not breaking the law is, is just not regarded. And so they tend to have various different crimes that they will commit and be convicted of. And that's what Hare found when he was uh, studying psychopaths in prison that had been convicted. And so does Joe Exotic exhibit this sort of criminal versatility? Well, it's it's hard to know because we see some criminal versatility, but not in the classic sense that we tend to see from what we might consider classic psychopaths. Other psychopathic qualities are glibness and charming and very good at manipulating other people. Uh, he, you could definitely make an argue for, argument for that. He was, he was very charming. But that might be better conceptualized as just his vibrant personality or his narcissistic spectrum. Um, so you know, that's when we get into – Okay, in the eye of the beholder, uh, you know, every different clinician who specializes in personality disorders is going to see this a little differently. So, what's my conclusion? Just based on the data that's based, you know, that's given to us in the documentary, I can't diagnose him. If I actually met him and assessed him over five to fifteen sessions, I can guarantee you I would see a much more well-rounded human being with a lot of different personality aspects that we're not seeing in the documentary. But if we're just looking at the signs presented in the documentary, he definitely had some psychopathic traits, I would say, um, but was definitely not a classic psychopath. Classic psychopaths tend to be just complete train wrecks when it comes to uh, breaking the law. No one really wants to be their friend for very long. He had a lot of people who were um, who liked him, you know, over a long period of time. And after their relationship ended, you know, would talk, uh, you know, at least for the most part, um, you know, positive about him. There were people who spoke negatively about him, but but he just didn't have again the classic psychopath. They they tend to just have a wake of angry people behind them. Uh, but did he have some qualities? Yes, particularly because he, it seems, hired someone to kill someone. You know, most people, there's a line before murder, right? Um, But might one conceptualize that within the narcissistic desperation of that person who's criticizing me, who's coming in between me and my people? Because he might have even considered Carol a threat to his relationships with his husbands because – uh, as what is kind of intimated or at least portrayed in the documentary is his husband's – he might have had this notion of like if I lose my money, if I lose my tigers, which would make me lose my money and my fame, my husbands will leave me because they're only here because 
one, they really like the animals, and two, they need me for their drugs, for meth and marijuana and whatnot. And I need a lot of money to be able to supply them with these substances. It's hard to know if these, if Travis and John were only in it for the drugs and the fame, um, or a combination, or who knows. But it's possible that Joe Exotic had that notion, and so Carol might have been seen not only as a as as getting in the way of his fame and his his fortune, but also in the way of his attachments to his animals and to his humans. And so um, one could conceptualize that uh, decision to hire someone to kill her as a narcissism reaction rather than a psychopathic reaction. Now, how high on the narcissistic personality spectrum is he? Hard to say. It's it'd be really easy for me and arm you know armchair diagnosticians to point at him and be like, whoa, that person is super narcissistic. I mean, look at his hair. Look at those music videos. Look at how many you know the reality TV show stuff that he does. Look at all the way he dresses and the way he talks. That's where it takes a clinician that's experienced in actually working with people with these personality disorders. It takes them and their you know, wisdom to be able to decipher the difference between someone who just has a flamboyant, interesting personality and, and their trade literally is in getting, gaining attention from other people. You know, entertainers make their money by you know, making people look at them. Tom Hanks makes his money by making people look at him. Uh, so was he an entertainer or was it the, was the, the trying to get attention coming from a place of desperation? And that's usually what we're looking for. Most people want attention, not everyone, but many people want fame. That doesn't mean you're nar- you, you suffer from narcissistic personality. It might mean you're narcissistic in the colloquial sense, which you know I'm not going to get into. It's just a word that people throw around. But in terms of narcissistic personality disorder spectrum, uh, there's a difference between just wanting attention and needing attention to survive emotionally. Um, that's that's the big difference. And so did he need the attention to survive emotionally? Mm, maybe. You know, there's certainly there are times when there's evidence of that because, he, again, he's shooting himself in the foot, particularly by embezzling money into his campaign, which could land him in federal prison um, and various other things that he was doing. Uh, so, you know, certainly some evidence. I'm just taking a wild guess that if I assessed him for a long period of time, that I would find him to be somewhere on the spectrum, but not extremely high, because I've I've certainly treated people that were um, more obvious about their um, their problems. For example, if there was any evidence of him crumbling and falling into that abyss of worthlessness, then I would have more data to say, oh, he's probably higher in the spectrum. Um, because if he's lower on the spectrum, then his worthlessness isn't as broad and not as powerful, and thus uh, the chance of him and, – and you also wouldn't need as much narcissism to cover that up. And so um, you know, it's hard to say. Uh, but he definitely sh- – now, another way to conceptualize him would be a combination between narcissism, personality spectrum, and psychopathic personality spectrum, which is certainly a valid one as well. You could also, another clinician could come along and say, no, according to me, I see him as being on psychopathic personality spectrum and narcissism is an element of psychopathic personality, which um, is is true. Um, okay, so let's 
let's watch again and see what else comes to my head. An amazing animal adventure. Have you guys had your photo taken already? No, keep coming, keep coming. The toenails, you gotta watch because they rip your face. So this didn't occur to me until rewatching this that actually uh, my, me and my wife recently went to a ranch that was very similar to this, but it was kangaroos instead of big cats. It, near Seattle, there's actually a kangaroo ranch where it's similar to this, where they breed uh, little kangaroos and wallabies. They raise them in their house, and then they eventually move to the ranch outside the house, and they sell these of kangaroos and wallabies all over the world to zoos and I think to private owners. And the owner guy, the guy who owns the ranch and lives there, is very similar to a Joe Exotic and a Doc Antle in that lots of personality, um, very interactive with the customers, um, lots of, um, you know, okay, here's your moment that you get to kiss the wallaby. I mean, they brought he brought out a baby wallaby in it. Um, it licked uh, Stacy in the face, and I have a video of it actually. Um, and then he has this whole thing where there's these giant kangaroos, and he has you get down on the ground and put a little piece of bread in your mouth, and then it, it, and you get a picture, and it looks like you're kissing the kangaroo, which I also have a picture of. Go to the Facebook page; you can find all that stuff there. Um, so it's just interesting to think about uh, what sort of personality is attracted to this kind of work. Um, I think you know we definitely see a pattern in the personalities that are in, are in the documentary. Now, maybe there are plenty of other zoo people who uh, are very different in their personality and they're not included in this documentary because they're not very interesting. You know, it's hard to know because it's a, s- a small sample size. This is a prepaid call from. An inmate at the Grady County Jail. So a lot of people are emailing me asking, and friends of mine, honestly, are saying, do you think that Joe Exotic actually did hire someone to kill Carol Baskin? And the answer is it's hard to know because this documentary doesn't uh, present all the data Um, It it definitely has a spin that's trying to tell us. Now, we do know that a jury of 12 people found that he was guilty of that beyond a reasonable doubt. And so at least 12 people actually getting the evidence, not what's presented to us on the Internet, found him to be uh, clearly, uh, you know, uh, responsible for that. So um, we have that. It looks like he is guilty of it. Um, there's that one recording with him and Jeff. I think it's him and Jeff, where he's absolutely saying, "Yes, I'm here's you know I'll get you the money. Go down to Florida and kill her." Um, yeah, that's pretty damning. It'd be hard to imagine a situation where one would say that in jest, right? I've never said that. I've never acted like I wanted to hire someone to kill anyone before. Um, so you know, it it's pretty damning evidence. Now. From watching this, is is it possible that other people have also committed crimes and should be investigated and indicted and convicted like Jeff, like Alan, like some of these other people? I don't know. Uh, it looks like there's enough evidence there to have them looked into. Um, but um, that doesn't take away from Joe Exotic's guilt. Now, if Joe Exotic is guilty of this, which it looks like he is – then 
we as a society have to recognize that because I, I was looking at some articles where they're basically saying Joe Exotic is a hero of some kind. And they're totally convinced of his innocence based on a documentary, even though the documentary clearly has scenes where Joe Exotic is clearly saying he wants to kill Carol and is trying to hire people to kill him, kill, kill her. Again, are other people involved in that? Um, you know, we don't we don't know enough from this documentary to, to conclude that. Um, so to make him out to be some kind of anti-hero or some kind of hero is I think it you know, I, it just is distasteful to me. I mean, think about if you were Carol and her family, how much terrorizing she's been going through over the past number of years. Imagine if you had some, some uh, you know, seemingly unhinged individual with a lot of money and resources and a lot of guns threatening to kill you on the internet, in the media, shooting, you know, dolls of you in the head, uh, and then actually hiring people to kill kill you. And then the you know a certain percentage of of the country thinks that he's some kind of wonderful hero and that you are a terrible person. I mean, how did that work out? I mean, you might not like Carol. You might think she's dorky or you don't like the way she dresses or something. But we can say that she didn't threaten. She didn't hire anyone to kill anyone, and she didn't threaten to kill anyone, as far as we know. Um, so. I think we need to make sure that we keep our priorities straight here. This is part of the reason why we see uh, problems in our society when people get confused about the core of the issue here, which is that uh, if you just heard a story like someone hired someone to kill an innocent woman, you'd be like, well, obviously the person who hired some, you know, that's a terrible person. Just because you like him or you like his style or you feel bad for him or um, he has this tragic history or you can see the good in him. We shouldn't confuse that for um, what what he likely did. Now, that doesn't mean you don't have empathy for him. I certainly have tremendous empathy for, for people like this and for him. But that doesn't mean we uh, we can't see the gray area that someone that we like, someone that we might even kind of um, look up to in a certain way or whatever uh, – that person can also do a terrible, terrible crime that needs to have justice and that victims like Carol and a lot of other victims out there deserve our societal understanding of what really happened and support. Um, you know, one of the messages that can come – that people can come away from a story like this, if you have been abused, for example, by someone like Joe Exotic who was very charming – and society reacts like Joe Exotic is awesome and Carol Baskin is terrible. If you're watching that, you're going to be like, man, we are – I am screwed as an individual in this society because even regular people who don't have a vested interest in this are siding with the perpetrator, are siding with the, the terrorist, the person who um, you know, systematically for years was emotionally abusing me like – I cannot trust anyone. So we really just have to make sure that we advocate for victims here and understand the bigger picture. It doesn't mean that you can't like him on a certain level, but don't don't be clouded in your judgment. Again, I'm guessing I'm going to get a lot of comments, people saying you're stupid for believing that he's guilty. I don't know he's guilty or innocent. All I can say is that according to a court of law, they found him guilty. They had a chance to see all the data. We have not. So unless you were on that jury or have some extremely intimate 
uh, access to data that the, the court had, then you also have no idea. So um, my, my take on the data was that he likely is guilty. I, obviously, I can't say that he was because I wasn't there or in the court. So let's all just calm down. <laughs> So my hand was still a functioning hand at the time, just really bandaged up and in a lot of pain. But the next morning, the surgeon came in and said, hey, Saf, it's going to be, you know, about two years of reconstructive surgery. He said, or you can amputate it. And I said, amputate it. So one of the, I think, silver linings of this documentary is that, well, I don't know if it's, if it's a good thing or a bad thing. But there's a lot of uh, queer people. We have a, you know, Joe Exotic is gay, as a gay man. We also have the uh, element of polyamory, which is a totally viable way to live. And, and a lot of people would probably function better if they lived uh, in the polyamorous relationships. Um, there's a huge polyamorous uh, community in my town of Seattle, and I've worked with a lot of polyamorous clients. We also have uh, a trans uh, man here in uh, – what's his name? Sass? Rass? Sass? I can't remember his name. But there's a fair amount of, of queer representation in this documentary. So that's good for the representation side. I don't know if it's good that it is presented uh, in this kind of story because all these – people are associated with some shady things. So, uh, you know, give and take, I guess, on some level. Um, the other thing that uh, a couple of people asked me that they wanted to know was, you know, what about uh, John, Joe Exotic's two husbands that are in the documentary, John and Travis? Um, it comes out, according to the documentary, that before meeting Joe, they had never had a relationship romantic or sexual with another man. Um, and afterwards, John married a woman. And a lot of people are framing this as like Joe Exotic convinced these young straight males to become gay for a while, even though they weren't gay. It's hard for us to know what's really happening there. One thing is that there's, there's a difference between how you identify and the way you live your life. There are plenty of people who don't identify as gay or bisexual and have had bisexual experiences. So what is that? You know, they, they've had you – know, you, you have a guy who calls himself straight, but he's had some sexual experiences with men. Is he bisexual or is he straight who dabbled in uh, you know, same-sex relationships? There's a lot of different literature on this. And we just have to be descriptive about it and we have to ask the individuals, well, how do you identify? And we just have to respect that and that's fine. But as a society, we tend to obsess on this like, is were they gay? How could you, how could you be straight and be in a long-term sexual relationship with another man? I mean you have to be gay to be that way, right? Or at the very least, you have to be bi. You know, these, are, these are complicated things. You know, what do we mean by gay? What do we mean by bi? Um, we have to respect how they identify. Um, there's a lot of variability to sexuality in when you actually learn about the the truth of of people's sexuality, individual sexuality. So we, again, we just have to calm down and say, like, well, you know, the story is what it is, and um, you know, let's let's not worry about forcing labels down other people's throats. Having said that, you know, I, again, I, I liked the fact that we had a documentary of 
queer people that we don't normally see, I'm guessing. You know, we, we t- tend to see queer people represented in San Francisco, New York, Seattle, L.A., and we don't tend to see representation of queer people in in Oklahoma, for example, and of a particular, uh, you know, group of people in Oklahoma, people who work at zoos and might have had a rough past and this kind of thing. So uh, I, on one hand, I think it's good. On the other hand, you know, it, it's like um, it'd be good if we had a lot more representation so these kinds of characters don't – I guess the the downside would be is if someone watched this and thought of all trans and gay people – to be like this, you know, and to, ha- to have sort of a train wreck of a life the way that Joe Exotic did, um, which, of course, is not true. So I don't know. But anyway, I just thought of that when I rewatched the scene. Carol, God damn it. You missed that on it again. For each one of these people Joe traded cats to, there's more information about them in the hopes that with law enforcement taking this serious and going after it, that they'll actually search out some of those connections and see that it's this big network of people. Yeah. The other element here as an animal lover myself, and I know a lot of you out there are as well, is this whole subject of animal rights and animal mistreatment. The documentary you know, touches on it, but it's so obscured by the murder, mayhem, and madness that the documentary uh, focuses on, it it raised a lot of questions for me about what's happening in our world and in my country regarding animals and uh, and oversight of how they're being treated and the regulations and how they're being enforced. Are people – because the allegation is that some of these, if if not these ones represented, the – these big cat owners will breed them for the babies and will have lots of money around attracting customers to, to cuddle with the babies. But the, the life cycle uh, or the, the amount of span of time that a big cat is, is a cute little uh, kitten uh, is a very small percentage, like you know 2% of their life. The rest of their life, they're this giant animal that requires – thousands and thousands of dollars to feed a, a gigantic area of acreage, um, you know, and the animal is no longer friendly towards humans because it's a not domesticated and, and doesn't, you know, and, and is a wild animal and likes to eat people on some level. Side note, um, I recently learned, I don't know, a couple of years ago, you know, when we grew up, when I grew up, at least the narrative about our uh, our past as a species was that we've always been sort of at the top of the of the pyramid, you know, the the apex predator kind of thing. Well, it's clear from uh, evidence that we found there's a, again, I might be screwing this up a little bit. I'm not um, a scientist in this, in this, in this field, but they found a cave that uh, preserved a lot of animals that must have been um, prey for a, some kind of large cat, like a leopard or something in, in Africa. And they found, a lot of animals that we would expect, like rabbits and this kind of thing, but there are a lot of human bones too. So the evidence points towards this this you know herd or this pack of big cats preyed on our ancestors and would drag them up into a tree, eat them, and then the bones would fall into this cave, and then now there's this there's this evidence there, which of course makes sense. I mean, just imagine us walking around uh, without any weapons, particularly. <laughs> And a you know a pack of ten lions comes on us like 
the 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 slowest person would definitely have been dinner for that pack. I mean, there's just we can't run fast. We we don't have any claws. Uh, our teeth are, are made for things other. You know, we're weak. I mean, we we would just instantly be be food for for these animals, which of course you know tells us why we're such an anxious species, um, and also why we're so attached to each other because you know we need each other so much. Um, so. Uh, it anyway that's a side note but when i'm watching this documentary i'm like who would want a gigantic tiger in on their property like it, it yeah they're great to look at for sure but you know and there's all those cute uh videos of the you know you're cuddling with the giant animal but at the same time, you know, they could turn on you and eat you in a second, which happens sometimes anyway. Um, but it does. This documentary does raise this this larger question of, um, you know, what's happening? You know, because uh, the the way it makes it look, and again, it's just the documentary's uh, information, the way they're presenting it. It kind of looks like the government is not paying attention to this. Maybe it's because it's so small, or the voters don't really care that much, or something. But um, it, it shines a light on something that I'm hoping as a society we can kind of look at and go like, I think we need more regulations around that. I don't think we want to live in a country where people are for profit having babies and then selling them to homes that can't take them. And then they have to you know, give the cat to places like Carol Baskin who actually take in the animals for free. Um, because uh, you know people aren't educated enough to understand what they're really signing up for when they buy one of these cute little babies. Um, of course, there's a larger, much larger question of how are we treating animals in general? The chicken industry, the beef industry, you know, the um, the pork industry, etc. All these things are. I'm positive in fifty, a hundred years, we will look back at what we're doing right now in general and just just be disgusted with the way that we are doing things. And so um, this is, of course, just the tip of the iceberg. I don't want to depress everyone, but um, that's what comes to mind. So let's skip ahead and see what happens to me when I watch that stuff. I packed up everything. I sold my car, and I convinced my dad to drive me down. This is me when I first got there. My dad left. Actually, what he said to me was, goodbye. Don't fall in love with your boss because he and Buck Bond, he's like, oh my God, this guy is a chick getter. You know what I mean? He's anyway. There's a whole other element to this documentary that sheds some light on particularly Doc Antle, but to some extent Joe Exotic as well, that they at least the allegation is that they prey on young people who haven't uh, learned enough about life to avoid exploitation of charismatic individuals. And there's there's so much to, to dive into here. And I think a lot of people are just jumping to this thing of just like, oh, they're cults. And I find that word to be like the word racism. It's like, well, what do you mean by racism? What do you mean by cult? Um, uh, so, and I'm sure I'll get a lot of comments below. People are like, oh, it's, I can't believe, it's clearly a cult. I, you know, whenever I talk about the nuances of the definition of the word cult, I get a lot of angry people, <laughs> which, you know, is what it is, I suppose. It's the internet. But um, so there's a lot to dive into. Uh, it, could this woman, I can't remember her name, could she have left at any time? It seems as though she could have. You know, she wasn't uh, being prevented to, to, but to do, to leave. Um, so on one level, 
it there wasn't that control over it, right? Because there are cults who actually will prevent people from leaving or they will get dirt on them and will say, you know, if you leave, then we'll post this on the internet and that'll be bad for you. Or they make them commit crimes so that they can say, if you leave, I will tell the cops that you did this crime and you'll go to jail. Um, the Nexium cult kind of did that, if I remember right. So we, we, we don't hear that. Maybe it is happening, but we don't hear that. Uh, having said that, you have a charismatic leader, this Doc Antle, who has a lot of the signs, lots of women around him, um, very charismatic, very good at control, very um, interested in in control, looks like maybe hard to say, very interested in, in his image and um, very interested in getting younger people to uh, get close to him, very interested in using things that will attract people like big cats. Now, what's the difference between someone who is polyamorous, which we don't want to pathologize, uh, who is really into big cats and, and loves them uh, and is really into sharing his big cats with the public, which is fine. Any zoo owner or, or administrator, that, that's what they do. That, that's their trade. Um, so we don't, don't want to pathologize that. So some of this you know, is, is, I think, something we don't want to pathologize. What's the difference between that and someone who is intentionally trying to control other people, looking for vulnerable people to manipulate, and then exploiting them and hurting them? It's a hard thing to, to, to figure out, particularly with the data that's presented. There's no interviews with the other women at Doc Antle's. Uh, zoo, and um, we have this one interview with her, which you know points in the direction of exploitation and harm to individuals. Now, what do we do about it? Um, it's it's probably not a legal issue, but it is an issue of education. I do know this for sure that we definitely need to educate the public, particularly younger people who are more vulnerable, and particularly women, by the way, on how. Uh, exploitation begins. What what the early signs of exploitation are, uh, whether it of a high control relationship, whether it be a domestic violence relationship, which is much more common than these kinds of relationships. Cult relationships are very rare, but a relationship where someone is breaking you down emotionally so that they can control you in an intimate relationship is 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 really common. So teaching people how to detect that and how to stand up for your rights and how to, uh, you know, like what I would like is every 18-year-old knows that if someone that's very charismatic, like a mentor or someone, starts to do things to separate you from your family and your friends, that's a, that's a sign of a high control relationship that you definitely need to start looking at more, uh, more um, objectively and more with more skepticism and more suspicion because that, that's the early sign. And that'd be a cult sign, right? Or even a domestic violence relationship as well. It's it's common to that as well. So, what do we do about this? You know, do we do we yell at Doc Antle? Um, I don't know. Uh, this is just one. You know, these are just like eight individuals that we're concerned about. What we definitely need to do is spread the word around the world. What are the signs? How to avoid exploita- exploitation? Also, how to value yourself? How to how to say, hey, I have value here. I don't like this and that. Um, I like this, like for this woman here, she loved working with the animals. Uh, She also um, seemingly didn't mind having some kind of relationship with Doc Antle, or at least, you know, whether it be just 
friendly or, or otherwise. Um, and how could she have been equipped with the ability to be like, okay, Doc Antle, I like this, I like that, I like that. I'm going to keep that, but I don't like these aspects, and so I don't want that. Um, now, maybe she would have been kicked off of the zoo at that point, but um, at least it gives her a chance to say, you know, give me this, give me that. Um, I, that's what I would like to see is, is people to understand those. Um, from my gauge of society, most people are completely unaware, particularly younger people, are completely unaware of the signs of a high control relationship happening. The other thing is, is how do we equip people with the relationships and security that they can turn to so that they don't have to turn to people like this. When you grow up and you feel a lot of attachment and security and someone comes along and says, you know what, I'm going to give you everything. I'm going to give you security. I'm going to give you money. I'm going to give you a direction in life. I'm going to give you fame. I'm going to give you a community. That is very enticing to someone who's never had attachment, never had security. And so we need to have, we need to help everyone have more security so that they're not susceptible, they're not vulnerable to these kinds of charismatic people and to domestic violence, intimate partner violence relationships. How do we do that? Well, it's complicated. But one, we educate people on how to properly attune to their children. Two, we help people economically because when you suffer economically, parenting is one of the first – not one of the first things. But parenting is one of the things that suffers when you're overstressed with money and having to work a lot. Um, we also need to help people with drug – with substance abuse in a, in a systematic, rational, mature way, which we're not doing. We also need to educate and support young parents who are raising young kids for the first time on how to attune to their kids. There are things – these are all empirically you know, uh, supported interventions that have been found to actually work to decrease you know, when those kids grow up how much drugs they use, whether you know, they become addicted or not, um, whether or not they drop out of high school, whether or not they commit a crime, whether or not they get a divorce themselves, whether or not they get pregnant too early. These are things that work, and we, we just simply as a society are not spending the money on that, and, and we could. Anyway, I'm ranting. Let's go back to the documentary. John's a muscled-up bully kind of guy. Does it come- as many of you know, some of these fascinating things that society focuses on, whether it's Tiger King or the Mona Lisa or Donald Trump, I'm at first really fascinated along with society on what we're all looking at. But then at some point it turns and I, and I start looking at the crowds as they look at the fascinating thing. And I start wondering, why are we as a society so interested in this subject? And with this documentary, pretty quickly, I um, started wondering if this is something like classism porn is what I might call it or judgment porn because you know when people watch this uh, there's all these memes out there right now of people being like well you know this is my face when I'm watching this show and and I think that a, a big element to this which I hate to ruin the show for people <laughs> is that there's a lot of classism elements to why this is entertaining and classism meaning like like with Joe or John, I think his name is, um, there's a – you know, you show this to um, what might I call middle class mainstream America and they're going to be like, wow, he has all these piercings. He has all these tattoos. He's being interviewed with his shirt off, which you have to wonder like why did the producers ask him to take his shirt off? I'm sure he didn't just show up to the interview without a shirt on. Um, so that's another thing you have to look at. It's like what – you know, why did they have – 
what was his name, Raff or Sass, I can't remember his name, but he's sitting in a junkyard. Why is he sitting in a junkyard while they're uh, interviewing him? So you just have to look at what are the producers trying to manipulate in us. And I think one of the things that they're manipulating in mainstream America is this this classism porn of like, ew, oh my god, that's so crazy, and their their life is such a train wreck, and he doesn't have any teeth, and and there's just a ton of fucking privilege in that judgment of that. I mean, what does it matter that he lost his teeth? What does it matter that he he was uh, you know reportedly addicted to meth? Lot of, lots of people have addictions. A lot of you out there have addictions, you know. But we associate meth with low class. We associate losing your teeth with low class. We associate hanging out without your shirt with low class. We associate, you know, the the shooting of guns at at dynamite things with low class, and just all in Joe Exotic's haircut and the mullet and all the various different accoutrement, you know, country music videos that look like that. We. We look down on that. We judge that as a, depending on the pocket that you're in. And I think, that's a, I think that's at least half, if not a majority of the entertainment value of this documentary. Now, does that ruin the documentary for me? Um, no. But what it does do as I'm watching it, you know, about halfway th- through the first episode or second episode or something, I started to look at myself. It's like, okay – I'm reacting to something in this documentary that's making it very interesting to me and I and I'm gasping or I'm like, you know, looking over at my wife and, you know, saying some snarky comment and we're laughing about a particular character in the documentary. And what that caused me to do is like, well wait, why am I doing that? Is this a classism thing? Am I looking down on these people? Is that why this is funny? Is is it okay to laugh at certain people in our society because of their identifiers, you know, namely class or something else? And I, I just think we need to question ourselves on that because um, change all the elements of the story. You know, Joe uh, is a, an accountant, for example, um, or sorry, John is an accountant. Joe Exotic doesn't have a mullet, doesn't shoot a bunch of guns, doesn't live in Oklahoma and have an accent. Um, it, it, you just got to wonder about that. Like, for example, Doc Antle, he doesn't have a lot of those markers of – being from working class. He, he has more of the markers of being middle class. And he, although he does have some elements of what uh, mainstream America might look down on, he's a lot less of a target in terms of classism judgment. And, and so he's not focused on as much as Joe Exotic, John, and, and these other kinds of people. Um, you could also even say that Carol is a target of that as well because of the way she dresses and the kind of the way she talks and stuff. Again, I don't want to ruin the show for everyone, but I just think you know we need to ask ourselves, why is this so entertaining to us? I think there's something to be learned from that. Uh, not to beat ourselves up, but because we, you know, everyone deserves to be treated fairly without judgment and without people ridiculing them because of who they are, um, as long as what they're doing isn't harming other people. You know, I don't think we should be laughing at people in that way. She's got a missing husband that's supposedly buried in her property. And that's a real true story. Her husband disappeared. The lady who runs. So this is another big question that I'm getting from uh, a lot of my friends. We're asking this question is, do you believe that Carol Baskin killed her husband? And if you do, do you think that she fed his body to the animals uh, in the zoo? 
there's a lot of speculation. I got into a kind of a mini argument with a friend of mine because he was saying uh, that he absolutely believes that Carol killed him and that uh, he uh, was eaten by the animals. And what I was saying is, well, uh, we don't know that. It, could it have happened? Yes. But there's certainly not enough evidence to me in this documentary that is super convincing of it. Now, what I will and, – and then people don't like that because people don't like gray area, I guess. When we watch crime stories uh, like documentaries, I see this tendency where people want to land somewhere. They want to be you know, Team Edward or Team Jacob. You know, they, they, they don't want to be in between. They, they, want to, they don't want to be – they want to be Team Carol or Team Joe. They, it's hard to sit in that middle place of like, well, who knows, you know. Did Michael Jackson commit those crimes? Well, you know, I, it, it, I wasn't there, but the, the evidence shows, da, da, da. And so it's harder for us to comprehend the fact that we'll, we don't know. There's no way this documentary will give you enough information to draw any kind of firm conclusion about whether or not Carol killed her husband. Now, is it possible? Absolutely, it's possible. Is it also possible that he disappeared under a number of other reasons that you can't creatively think of? Then absolutely. Um, one of the things that we often look to when people disappear under circumstances like this is the spouse. And just because it's a woman, we don't want to discount the fact. You know, if it w- if the genders were reversed, and uh, it was a woman who disappeared. And the man had reportedly made threats to her life, then you know it wouldn't be hard to imagine that. Well, you know, he's a pretty good suspect. So we don't want to ignore the fact that uh, Carol reportedly, allegedly, did threaten to kill him, and that he allegedly was worried about her killing him. Um, there's a lot of reasons why that could be some dubious information as well. They were going through a hard time. He could have been trumping up a case against her to try to get. Uh, her not to have any money. It's hard to know. Um, you know, does his disappearance look fishy? Absolutely. Is it possible that he killed her or that she killed him? Absolutely. Um, but, you know, for me, when I watch this, I just think like, well, it's possible, but I certainly can't tell from this documentary if it happened or not. Uh, I guess it's an interesting story, but, and we'll probably never know because it's so long since the disappearance of him. And from the report in this documentary, the police officers didn't do a super thorough job investigating it right afterwards. And so a lot of the evidence is just gone. So in all likelihood, we'll just never know. And we just have to be able to sit in that ambiguity of just not knowing. Now, you can have your suspicions, but you can't know. And so uh, now – mostly why I'm saying this is because I know half of you are therapists. And one of the things that – Um, I try to delineate is like if you're a non-therapist, if you're a citizen, then you can kind of let your brain go wherever you want to go. And there's not – depending on your profession and your lifestyle, it's not necessarily going to ruin anyone else's life. If you're a therapist and you have a tendency to jump to conclusions, then it's going to harm your ability to be a a therapist. You have to be as objective as possible and not not jump to conclusions. For example, let's see if a, a situation can emerge in my mind right now as an example of this. So this is a good one, actually. Someone comes in for individual therapy and they start complaining about their spouse. And they're like, oh, he, you know, he gets angry all the time. He, he drinks a lot. 
And whenever I go to him and try to talk with him about our relationship, he just tells me that, um, you know, I don't deserve a good relationship or, you know, whatever kind of thing you're hearing from this client. Well, if you just jump to the conclusion that, oh, well, this guy must be an asshole. Uh, he's completely dysfunctional. There's no redeeming quality in that person. Um, then you're not going to be able to assess the situation correctly. It's quite possible that the, your client is painting an, a subjective picture of this other person, which of course is obvious, right? But I've seen a lot of therapists do this. They'll get a little bit of data and it's hard for them to be like, well, some of this might be true and this person might not be telling me all the things. One, because they're just biased and two, because they might not remember because our brain tends to remember things that make us look good and we tend to forget things that make us look bad depending on the situation, of course. But so as a therapist, you have to try to uh, not, you know, you have to be able to be comfortable in a space of, well, I'm not really quite sure. And I, and I see, actually, I see now a lot of examples are coming to mind. I'll have a, a therapist um, or, a, you know, I have a lot of supervisees and they'll be telling me a story like, oh, I had this client and my client went to the psychiatrist and the psychiatrist was such an asshole and, uh, you know, and now I'm thinking I got to go yell at the psychiatrist and, and I'll be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. So what data do you have so far? Oh, well, you know, the client told me about how, how terrible the psychiatrist was. Oh, okay. Did you talk to the psychiatrist yet? No. Well, so you have data from a client that is undoubtedly biased, at least on some level. Now, was the psychiatrist an asshole? It could have happened for sure. But you just have to reserve judgment. You have to be like, okay, I have this data from my client that, that, that their psychiatrist was an asshole, but I haven't talked to the psychiatrist yet. I don't really know. I don't know the full picture here. And so you just have to reserve judgment. You'd be like, well, it's possible and let's look into it maybe. But, you know, I don't have enough data yet to, to land anywhere. Another uh, thing that therapists will do is jump to a conclusion around a diagnosis. Um, I see a lot of people doing this as well, particularly with personality disorders or with bipolar. There are certain diagnoses that I see a lot of mental health clinicians jumping to, whether it's ADHD, bipolar, borderline, these kinds of things. They'll have like two minutes of data and they'll be like, oh, you know, and they'll just throw out a diagnosis. And and again, I think it's that that um, discomfort with not knowing. We, we want to know the answer. And so with Carol, it's like people want to know, did she do it or did she not? Uh, you're never going to know. And be, unless something else comes out, like a videotape or DNA evidence or something, you know, we're probably just never going to know. Uh, and we just have to be able to live with that. And I think there's a liberation to ourselves and to our lives when we're just like, you know what? I just don't know. And I, and I don't have to know because um, – It'd be nice to know <laughs> because if she did, then we could bring her to justice. Anyway. All right. Well, I've ranted enough for this episode. It's probably too long anyway. I just can't seem to be quiet. That's a part of my narcissism shining through. So let me know what you think. Um, what do you think about this this uh, classism porn that I'm talking about? I've, maybe people have written about that before. I haven't. Rem- I don't remember reading anything like that before. Do you think Carol is guilty or innocent? <laughs> Or are you okay with the ambiguity? What do you think of Joe Exotic? Do you think he did it or not? Or are you okay with the ambiguity? What do you think about animal rights? What do you think about all this stuff? Please let me know. I'm curious because I just want to talk about this documentary. I'm talking about it with all my friends, and I'm curious what you out there think. Uh, Comment below or go to psychologyinseattle.com 
and fill out the contact us page. And um, that's one of the that's the way you can guarantee that I'll actually read something is if you go to the website, fill out the contact us page. And everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really do, and so do animals.